Hello, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast, a show created by an anxiety specialist and neuroscientist, me, that offers unique, practical, and actionable advice to help you understand what anxiety truly is and exactly what you can do to empower yourself to resolve it. I'm your host, Dr. Russell Kennedy, an MD who suffered with crippling anxiety for 30-plus years, and traditional therapy from psychiatrists and psychologists really didn't help me feel better. And I also didn't like being on psych meds. In 2013, after burning out and leaving medical practice, I came to the conclusion that if I was ever going to heal my anxiety, I would have to do it myself. And that's exactly what I did, drawing from experiences with psychedelics and holistic healing and combining those modalities with my scientific academic background in medicine, neuroscience, and developmental psychology. Here on the Anxiety Arcs podcast, I offer a distinctly non-traditional and non-medical approach to understanding and healing anxiety. So despite the fact I'm trained as a physician, in no way is what I say and suggest to be construed as medical advice because none of the ways I use to resolve anxiety has anything to do with traditional allopathic medicine. From my own healing, I've created a distinctly non-traditional understanding and approach that helps thousands of people from all over the world understand and relieve their chronic anxiety. So if you're ready, let's get into today's episode. Hey, and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I am your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, and I'm starting to do something new. I'm starting to interview people other than my daughter and my wife for the podcast because I want to expand the horizons of the podcast, and I'm getting a little tired of coming up with ideas every week. So this is the first one of the non-relative series where I interview someone I've admired for a long time, Kyle Cease, and we talk about trauma, we talk about how we develop a reactive identity when we're traumatized as children, the value of surrender, um, the, the problem with being a victim and how that affects your neural chemistry and the neuropeptides and basically just your neural wiring altogether, and how most things track back to childhood. You might be angry at your mother or your spouse or whatever, but really a lot of this stuff comes back to the places where your parents really kind of let you down. And just asking yourself, well, just like when, I know I'm upset right now with my my wife or my partner or my spouse or whatever, but what is this like? What is this reminiscent of? And that's the true root cause. And finally, that growth is painful. It's not this easy, linear healing that we're led to believe that is true, is that we just we just heal. We just slowly go up the mountain of healing. It's like, no, it goes up and it goes down and it goes up and it goes down. And it's really understanding that that growth is painful and being okay with that pain and not falling into victim that just keeps sucking you into that same place over and over again. So this is a great episode and I hope you really enjoy it and we'll start in just a second. Hello and welcome to the Anxiety Rx podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Russ Kennedy, and I'm going to start doing something that I haven't been used to doing, which is having guests on the program. So today I'm interviewing Kyle Cease, and I'm very excited about it, and I hope you really enjoy it. So welcome, 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 everybody. I'm so happy to have Mary and Kyle with me today. I saw Kyle at a conference that we both presented at last week in Phoenix, and his power went out in the middle of it. So we had to shout out his um, 
evolving out loud. I guess you really were out loud, you know, Boy. for that, for those 500 people. And, and he did an amazing job, like just an amazing job. And I think, you know, having a background in standup, I mean, I think you have to become bulletproof, right? I think that it is so funny because my, my events are called evolving out loud. And the, the reason is because I'm supposed to be going with the moment and like literally articulating what's here. And yeah, you saw me at an event last week that I'm in the middle of the event in a huge ballroom, tons of people, and the power went out. So my mic went out, the lights went out, everything. And immediately it was great because this message came through of like, this is not here breaking our heart. Nothing breaks your heart. It breaks your expectations. Mm. And that we're all trying to get somewhere else. And then things happen that only interrupt our agenda and our agenda is what we usually create to not look at ourselves. So most of us have a bunch of, if I get this thing, then I'll be happy. If I get this relationship, if I get over here, I'll be happy. And I think the universe is so amazing because it'll often show you, hey, you think that's the answer to your life? Well, I'm going to end it. So you have to be with what's here. And then, of course, that gig, like many gigs that have had challenges, became the best gigs of my life, the ones that where something interrupted or there was something weird happening or whether it was a heckler, there was one I did where the band was on fire. And, you know, this one was the power went out and we ended up doing about four more hours of content in the dark where I'm either yelling the content or they're doing an exercise or whatever. And it was incredible. It was almost like the darkness represented us going inward more and really getting to the darkness inside of ourselves. And and uh, it was a very, very fun event. I'm very, I was very proud of that event. And I'm oh, so glad I didn't, I'm, I'm so glad I didn't have any structure or a, you know, like a PowerPoint or a thing that would have needed power. It, and I, the, the message started coming through, this is accessing our true power, you know? Yeah. And I, it was fun to be there and see you there. Yeah, no, you, you guys, you did amazing. Like just how the, just how it all, the power goes out and it's like, okay, what are we going to do? Then you get the you know emergency lighting. And it's like, okay, well, I'll just, because you seamlessly just went into, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is how we're, how we're going to work. And everybody, and they were an amazing audience too. So that was really helpful as well. But they were really right. receptive to what you had to say. And I think, you know, so many times in personal development, we go into this sort of cognitive loop where change your thoughts, you change your thoughts, you know, if you change your thoughts, you'll change your life. And, and much of what I do when I work with people with anxiety is to say, you know, your thoughts are that story, your thoughts are actually what's making you worse. And compulsively, I think what we do as children, if especially if we're in a situation where we can't handle it, or it's traumatic, is that we go into our heads because that's the only safe place for us. We can't be in our bodies. Our bodies hurt too much because we're being emotionally, physically, sexually abused, uh, abandoned, rejected, whatever. So we learn how to go into our thoughts as a way of protecting ourselves. But that works as a child, but it doesn't work as an adult because when you start creating these horrible thoughts, you start believing them. And when you believe them, you create this alarm that's stored in your body. And that alarm just energizes the thoughts and the thoughts energize the alarm. And you get in this alarm anxiety cycle that I call it. And it's just a loop that we can't see to get out of because we've paralyzed the prefrontal cortex, the part of our brain that would actually say, hey, you're going out of control here. Let's bring it back. So the unfortunate part of human wiring is that we get upset and we shut off the very part of our brain that would help us. Yes. 
That's so true. It's, it's really interesting a way that I see kind of what you were saying is like, what we don't understand is the thoughts literally are stemming from a pattern you've created to avoid trauma, right? So as a child, let's say you get a D in math and your dad hits you and your little body goes, I don't know how to handle this. So it goes, I'm going to literally create an identity of someone that gets straight A's all out of the don't hit me, right? All out of the, or don't shame me, mom, or don't abandon me, someone. And so then we create what we think is our identity, which is a character that we created out of just the constant fear of don't get hurt again. And that character is sitting on top of the feeling of I'm of the abuse. And so if you're changing those thoughts within the same realm of consciousness that they're coming from, that's still control trying to control control. Yeah. And instead of trying to change your thoughts, which usually comes from the same level of consciousness, I get really excited about seeing what the biggest fear is if we don't achieve straight A's or if we don't make the thing happen. And so when many people say a sentence like, I got to do this or what, I don't know what to do next or how do I, I almost always hear a trauma under it that's unseen. And I will ask them, okay, if you don't know what to do, what are you? And that's when they usually say, then I'm a failure or then I'm unloved or I'm unwanted or whatever. And what I've really developed in doing a couple thousand one-on-ones in the last few years is having people say, you're allowed to, and then whatever the biggest fear is, you're allowed to be a failure. You're allowed to be unloved. You're allowed to be alone. You're allowed to be abandoned. You're allowed to be abused. And when I say those things, that doesn't mean you're creating complacency. So those things happen. It's that you're not controlling that fear anymore. And the five-year-old you can't control your deepest fears anymore. And so when you bring surrender in where you're saying, to the pattern. I love you. Even if you did fail, I love you. Even if you're not enough, I love you. Even if you are feeling guilty, then the pattern is being surrendered. And very often it'll start to come to light and dissolve. And then it's not that you're changing your thoughts. You're changing the consciousness that thinks, and you're moving much more from a God consciousness than don't hurt me consciousness. And many of us are stuck in a survival mechanism that was built to protect the trauma from coming up. But our greatness will be when we finally can bring love and light to the deep trauma that we're scared to to come up. And then we see it and then it's allowed and then it can be cried out. So most of our thinking of what do I do is actually unconsciously on top of a trauma. So it's not the truth that's thinking. It's Mm -hmm. just fear and a five-year-old and protection that's thinking in the first place. So anytime someone says, what do I do? I can see so that I'm not a failure, so that I'm not confused, so that I'm not lost. And I'm like, oh, that's where the gold mine is. Because if that was allowed, the what do I do character dies, and it's replaced and the trauma that's allowed goes, and all of that's replaced by higher level love, more God, next steps, intuition, and you don't have to think in a long timeline, you almost just hear now to now, what's the next step? What do I do? What do I let go of? And you keep moving more into the true you. And the true you never thinks, what do I do? It's just, what am I? What's here? Mm -hmm. And then it makes amazing steps from a much higher consciousness. That's what God wants versus what you're doing to not get hurt. And I believe the collective consciousness now is moving to that level of surrender. In other words, control doesn't work anymore. Mm. Trying to control your thinking, trying to control 
you know, uh, what your long-term plan is even like all that control doesn't work. And we're moving to a consciousness that the only way out of everything is through surrender, not passivity surrender, like staying in an abusive thing, but, but surrender to what you're feeling, like surrender to what they're saying, surrender to everything. That's not literal, actual fight or flight. Like there's a gunman in the house, surrender to everything that's there. And in surrender, you move more into the God you and the love you that can transcend everything. And the triggers get lighter and lighter as we age and we get older and we release these things. So we actually get younger because we're releasing baggage and moving to a freer you. So there's a quick addition to what you said. Yeah, no, that was awesome. You know, and I think that's kind of the basis too of, and I love that as well, right? Because you're basically going through the wall because there is this wall that we hit like, oh, what would happen if I did this? I'd be a failure. Well, what if you're a failure? What's the worst part of being a failure? And then you go through that. So I think what happens with people is that when they hit that wall of their old trauma, anything that's reminiscent of their old trauma, they immediately go into their heads and, and they search for the answer in their heads. And basically, we have these cortical brains, which are, you know, understand language, and these subcortical brains, you know, pons, medulla, hippocampus, amygdala, these things that are below the level of our overt consciousness. And that's where a lot of these trauma programs are held in these sort of subcortical regions. And the thing about those subcortical regions, pons, medulla, uh, hippocampus, amygdala, is none of those structures understand language. So we're trying to use our cortical language to soothe a program that's that's more godlike, that's that's more that's deeper in us. And the only way to change a feeling program is with a feeling solution. So one of the things that I like to say is you can't change a thinking problem with it, or you can't change a feeling problem with a thinking solution. Right. So, but we we worship the mind in this society. We believe that the mind, you know, you think positively and you can get over this stuff, and it makes people feel horrible because it's yes. like I have this horrible depression, this anxiety, this OCD, or whatever. How come I can't get over it? And and it's because a lot of these programs are wired deep into us at our subcortical below the level of the cortex, below the level of our understanding. So I look at a lot of therapies that are basically talk-based and it's like, well, you're not actually really getting to the original issue, which is in these subcortical feeling regions of your, of your personality or the the feeling regions of yourself. When you're trying to fix a cognitive, fix a, a feeling problem with a cognitive solution, it just doesn't work. Completely. It's almost like a first grader trying to figure out how to how to heal a sixth grader. It's like you don't have the capacity to create a space for that. And so the smaller thinking, the thinking is the thinking was created on top of the trauma. So there's like there's a character that's sitting on top of a box and it's like, don't look in the box. And I'm going to create as much thinking as possible to not look at the box. Mm. So you cannot heal this at the level of thinking at all. You can you can in the level of like going from victim to achiever. Like if you have a victim mindset, like literally you just think you're in full reaction of the world and there's no power at all. Mm-hmm. Maybe going to a you can change your thoughts thing is helpful at one point. <clears throat> but eventually you go to a higher consciousness and you start moving. In my opinion, you can, it's like victim to achiever to vibration to oneness. Mm-hmm. That's the, <clears throat> the four levels, right? So, and Michael Beckwith talks about this in his book, 
um, life visioning, but victim is like, everything happens to me. I have no power. So the reason the achievement seminars have the biggest audiences is because most people are in that first stage. So the second stage just goes, do you want to change your thinking and manifest all the things that you were worried you can't get or that you lost? Like, do you want to get the car? Do you want to make a million dollars? Here's achievement. Here's the secret. Here's, here's how you change your thinking. But there's those changing the thing. So there is an expansion when you start to realize you can change your thoughts from a full victim mindset. But then there's like vibration. You start going, okay, what move will I make that expands me to an openness that I don't understand that would make me, you know, undo myself from my addiction to the trauma that that causes me to move out of fear without knowing it. And you can move based on expansion and contraction, right? So you you won't even know why, but you'll be like, you'll feel this calling, like, what if I write that book? Or what if I let go of this job or whatever? And it creates this opening. That opening is going, if you do, you will be letting go of the addictions that you have to cover up the trauma inside. And in doing so, you'll start to expose the trauma, which you might cry out. So that's kind of the third stage to me, right? Where it's going, okay, I'm going from changing my thinking to choosing what expands me and letting go of the addictive things that contract me. And by doing that, I end up exposing the deepest fear and creating a portal that's bigger and easier to transcend it. So that's kind of what Michael Beckwith would call through me, in my opinion, where you're making decisions that would expand your soul and move you towards truly what you are and away from the patterns you created to not get hurt when you were five. And then the fourth stage is as me, which to me is almost the the discovery of there is no separate me. Mm. <laughs> there is no separate self. Like I even think at times when we go, that person doesn't meet my needs they're really saying the ego's needs because the more I'm just here, the more I realize many of the things that I think are my needs are actually traumatic needs mm-hmm. to keep trauma there. Even the five love, love languages should be called the five trauma languages <clears throat> because when people are like, oh, I really like it. I like touch. Well, someone right. doesn't like it. Well, maybe someone doesn't like it because the person that touched them also beat them. So they feel a different thing, right? Or if you're like acts of service for me is that's because when I was a kid, my mom never did that. So I didn't feel love. So when someone does an acts of service, Thing. So these aren't even love languages, they're trauma languages. Love mm-hmm. is the now and what you are, in my opinion. So when you start to notice the patterns in the body are seeking love to not disappear, um, then they're trauma languages. And it, when you're more and more in the now, you realize what separates me and you is the illusion of separation, which comes from the mind, which says, I'm this age, or I'm this money, or I'm this ethnicity, and you're different. And then I bring, you know, bring all that in. The truth is I'm now, and everything that I'm not starts to dissolve in that now. And, um, you know, traumas go very quickly when you realize there's no you really. Right. And you can link traumas to the I that doesn't really exist. There, you're just now. So I is usually needs a story in the past that doesn't exist to stay there. Right. So yeah. I went all over the place, but it- no, no, I think that's great. I think just I love your stream of consciousness stuff because the thing is, when you're talking, I write down like 15 different things. Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go with this? You know, uh, one of the things was tears. You know, um, my, my mentor in developmental psychology, uh, Gordon Newfeld, I mean, 
80% of your brain development occurs before you're at the age of five years old. So, you know, he talks about tears as a way of adapting. That's your sleep and tears are one of the brain's great ways of adapting to trauma and pain. So one of the reasons why I think men suffer so much in this society is you're taking away, you're allowing them to sleep for the most part, but you're taking away these tears, this ability to kind of process and adapt. You know, your dog has died, uh, your divorce is final. There's nothing you can do about these things, but tears actually change the structure of the brain and the neurochemistry and the neuropeptides of the brain to say, yeah, that bad thing has happened, but I'm okay. Whereas trauma says this bad thing is still happening and it continues to happen, even though it isn't actively happening anymore. Your dad isn't hitting you anymore. Your mother isn't yelling at you anymore. You're now a 38-year-old man. But it's still there because that amygdala has no sense of time. So it records these things through what I think a, a brain area called the insula, which is basically a part of the brain that's deep, that kind of modulates the mind to the body and the body to the mind. And I think what we're going to find in the future is that there's an emotional signature in the body of your trauma. So say your mother was narcissistic and didn't bring oranges for the lacrosse team. And you had so much shame because every other mother has brought oranges for the lacrosse team every week, every practice. That is That sits in your body. And unless you process that, unless you go back and as you say, and I love that, and allow it to be there and not only surrender to it, but fully accept it as a version of your younger self that needs that healing. We're always kind of chasing our tail with the cognitive. So the tears actually allow us to process things that are beyond our level of processing. And I think one of the reasons why men suffer so much in our society, not that women don't, is that we've taken tears away from them. I've been doing a lot of work with men recently and you can feel even the unconscious belief that they're not allowed to talk about any feeling or the subconscious belief that you know men aren't supposed to cry and you know every group has their own stuff there's not a dismissal of what other people are going through but one that almost feels like not allowed to say is that men go through shit you know what i mean like you right. almost feel like i can almost see the comments the second i say men are in a lot of pain Right. It's almost like we don't have a right to say that. Like that's in the subconscious already. Even all the work we've done, I notice even my, like, I'm sorry for saying this, everyone, because I want to acknowledge, I understand that so do other groups of people. <laughs> but like, it's amazing how much it's like, I'm sorry for saying that. But it's something like, I don't know the actual number, but like 92% of suicides are men. Yeah. Something like that. It's like, 80. A, it's 80. Yeah, yeah. Oh. yeah. Most, most suicides, men are four times more likely to commit suicide than women. Men are more likely to use violent means to commit suicide. Men complete suicides because they use a gun or something like that. Whereas women will take pills. They're less likely to complete that kind of thing. But yeah, and I think one of the reasons why suicide happens, especially in men, is there, there is this thing in neuroscience we call the recency bias. So the recency bias is, is a horrible thing in, in, in our psyche that says how you feel now is how you're going to feel forever. Yes. So if you're horribly depressed now or you're horribly anxious now, there's a part of our brain that says, this is it. This is the rest of your life. There's, And yeah. we can't even see the way out. I know in 2013 when I left medicine, and we were talking about this before we, we went live here, is that I, 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 who am I if I'm not a doctor? Who am I? 
you know, so there's a part of me that that was feeling suicidal because this part of my identity that I had built up from trauma of my childhood, I grew up with a schizophrenic dad who I felt I could never help. So I became a doctor to kind of in proxy, in proxy help him that way. So it was one of those things like, okay, how much of this is me and how much of this is just my ego allowing me to survive? But in survival, I was just treading water. You know, I wasn't actually sort of swimming or enjoying the water. I was just basically in survival all the time. So getting back to the original thing, I mean, I think tears are one of those things that allow us to adapt to things that we cannot control. One of the things that I I feel really big about that's a, a kind of a it's fun to talk with you because we have two different yeah. languages that we both see the same way. Just right. like I I don't know the parts of the brain, you know what I mean, as much, but like I know that. I really believe that all suicidal thoughts are patterns. Like the true essence of you is not ever suicidal, mm. but, but patterns both actually need to die. And so when you're identified as a pattern, we trick ourselves into thinking, I want to die. Right. And patterns show up and, and like a pattern of codependency that protected you or a pattern of avoidance or a pattern of unloved or whatever these are patterns that showed up to protect you and actually served a purpose all the way here. And then as you ascend, they, they become less needed. They become less necessary. In fact, they're now in the way. And so I'll tell the pattern that wants to die when I feel off or depressed, or I think it's me that feels suicidal. I know it's a pattern and I get really present and I'll tell it, you're allowed to die in my body. And mm -hmm. I'll hold a space for the pattern that feels unloved or feels unseen, but it's never you that's suicidal. You can trick yourself into that it is. You can really convince yourself that. But we are on this planet to thrive and be amazing. And and if you think that it's you, then you'll attach to the pattern and and you'll want to go down with it. But that doesn't have to be the case, you know, like that aspects of our false selves are going to die all the time. And everything that is dying isn't you, right? And you're an expansive being. So it's really big to take in that and understand that, you know, it's a pattern that wants to go, not you. There was a second part to what you were saying that I actually forget now. And I was like, what was it? Cause I wanted to play off of that, but it's all, it's all right. We're both know. ramblers. So that's yeah. the thing we both sort of go with stream of conscience and stuff. But I think what you said is really critical is that there are things in childhood that we learn, like I was saying earlier, that we go into our heads when we're when we're powerless and helpless because typically as children we are powerless powerless and helpless so the pattern is go into your head dissociate into your head because that's a safety now you can do that as a child and there's some adaptive um, purpose for that but when you're 25 and you're still going into your head with compulsive worry, even though it worked as a child and you get all this sort of dopamine in your system, like we're on the right track. And I think the reason why people worry is because worry makes the, the uncertain a little more certain. So if you have a headache and you think, well, I have a brain tumor. Now you start secreting dopamine in your brain. It's like, it tells you, oh, we're on the right track. We've kind of solved something. 
But basically, now I have a brain tumor. So that even makes it even worse. So we get into this, what I call the alarm anxiety cycle, which is what you alluded to earlier, is there is this alarm in our body, these old programs that are stuck in our body. And they reflect through the mind. So that's my that's my theory of anxiety is it's actually not a mind-based problem at all. The mind is only reflecting this old trauma, mm-hmm. these old programs that are stored in your body. And because you're not aware of them, you assume that the worry is the is the problem. And we also, you know, we worship the mind in the society. So we believe that the mind is the issue, but it's really staying quiet and being able to kind of go, oh, I can see this pattern now. And when you see it, you don't have to be it anymore. You see yourself as separate from it, which is essentially what you're saying is that you see the pattern as something that's not you. So suicide is not you. It's a pattern that you've learned that probably had some adaptive reference when you were a child. Completely. Yeah. I mean, with anxiety, because I had it, that's what started the whole thing. Me too. Crazy anxiety. Yeah. One thing I think that we try to do when we get anxiety, if we don't understand what it is, is we try to control our thinking. So the mind's spiraling, and then you're coming in judging that and shaming that and trying to get it to stop, which almost speeds up the spiraling, because then that becomes a thing. And then it goes, I mean, that was what it was like for me. It was just like me trying to stop it over and over and over and it not working. It, mm-hmm. it just like speeding up. And so the really the biggest thing was to start allowing, like I started saying, I love my anxiety. Like I'm grateful for this anxiety. And I started watching it and it would feel like a bike wheel that's spinning and I would just watch it spin, but not try to push the brakes on it because the brakes on it make it speed up. So if I just watch it and watch the anxiety go, watch everything fall apart, watch all that, <clears throat> and allow, then I start to become the space that views it versus the anxiety itself. And then I'm not identified with the anxiety, so it loses its grip. So that was that was how I did it, like getting really, really present, finding more and more love for the anxiety, really wanting it to be there. And <clears throat> it would go away. It could not work without my resistance to it. Yeah. And it's like, I, I think, you know, my theory of anxiety is basically it's it's a state of alarm that's in your body. And it's also your younger self. It's also the inner child that did suffer emotional, physical, sexual abuse, rejection, abandonment, fear. That gets lodged in our body. And then we don't want to feel it anymore. So we go into our heads. But once you start allowing it to be there, not only allowing it to be there, embracing it as your younger self. Like I get people to put up a picture, you know, say you were had a trauma at the age of eight, like your parents divorce. It's like, well, get a picture of yourself at eight, put it up in your mirror and every day connect with it. You don't have to talk to it or whatever. But I do find that when people can connect with that younger version of themselves, initially it feels very disingenuous. It feels very forced. It's like, yes, I'm talking to my inner child. Yes, yes, yes. How are you today? Whatever. But over time, once you start doing it and develop a new program that says, hey, you know what? It's okay to actually welcome this child. Because I really believe that anxiety is a a mind-body disconnect. And it's also an adult self-child self disconnect. So the adult doesn't want to go back to the child because the child holds all their pain. And the child is waiting for the adult to stop abandoning them. So there's this this increasing divide between the adult self and the child self, which separates your mind and your body as well. And that just perpetuates this off-balance, hyper-reactive, sympathetic nervous system, sympathetic drive. Because if your body's in fight or flight, 
you shut off the prefrontal cortex, which is the ability of your brain to go, hey, let's become mindful. Let's become present in this moment. Let's become able to actually metabolize this old trauma rather than hitting the wall and running into our thoughts over and over and over and over again. Because that's like the definition of anxiety. And how people heal from anxiety is they actually connect with that part in their body they connect with the the younger version of themselves, see them, hear them, love them, and protect them in a way now they never could back then because we're not helpless children anymore. We actually have a lot more agency. And this is what part of your message that I love is we have so much more agency than what we believe we have. I agree. <laughs> Yay, I have Kyle's, I have Kyle's approval. Yay. Uh, yeah, I, 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 uh, I'm like, what you're saying is perfect. Yeah. I mean, I just feel you and agree. I, yeah. And it's like, I, I, you know, and like, I, and I'll talk forever as well, but I really do think that what we do in North American society and to some extent your European society as well, is we start trying to change the thoughts. Now, this is what I wanted to say earlier. There's nothing wrong with CBT or ACT or, or, or reframing your mind. But my wife, who's also a somatic trauma therapist, Cynthia, she, she said something to me the other day. She said, you know, cognitive therapies, they do help. They absolutely help. But unless you do the somatic work first, unless you have something to ground it, there's nothing that those cognitive therapies actually change in a permanent way. There's no foundation for them. So you right. can think positive. The secret was massive in 2005. You don't hear much about it anymore because changing your thoughts does work. But it's very, very difficult to think in opposition to how your body feels. So if your body's carrying this trauma from your youth, it's going to reflect into your mind. And you're not going to think of, you know, puppies, cookies, and picnics. You know, when you've got right. this alarm, what I call background alarm stored in your body, you have to go back, find that child, find the alarm, bring it up to, to the feeling level, and then allow yourself to feel it rather than run away from it. Well, and I almost think of it as like a collective consciousness too. I think the secret was exactly right for 2005, mm -hmm. 2006. Totally. But so the way I've been seeing it is that, you know, we were taught think positive in the nineties and two thousands and that's great. But then there's a shaming of the negative that still exists in your body. Yeah. So when it's like, I'm going to only think positive, there's no acknowledgement about you're thinking positive to avoid shame that's here. And so we're we're zoning in on ignoring a part of your body. I feel like 2020 was collectively the opening of looking at the stuff mm. that was buried and the dark unseen stuff. So like, you know, no matter what you feel politically about what's going on in the world in 2020, I feel like if you look at it from a God perspective, all of a sudden we're in our houses for two years where our patterns are breaking. We're not able to go to restaurants or travel as easily. You can't even go into a store without a freaking thing on your face. So right. you can't, you know, really have that kind of addictive, we all just talk to not look at ourselves thing. It's like, you're going inward. And in 2020, I feel like that was the start of us looking at the unseen stuff. And that expanded our consciousness to bigger. So I almost feel like 2019, like, we're keeping our house, our one story house as nice as possible. But 2020, that we discover there's a door going down to an attic. And oh, my God, it's a two story. The good news is we've now have a lens that can see it's a two story house. The bad news is in the attic down 
below is a dead body with a bunch of rats and cockroaches <laughs> everywhere. So the good news is your lens is bigger. The bad news is your lens is bigger. So now you can see all the buried up gunk that you didn't know was there in 2006. It was still there in 2006, but we didn't have the consciousness to look at it. So there's this amazing new, like in other words, all the bad stuff going on in the world were still going on in the 90s. It's the same politicians. It's yep. the same, right? But we didn't have the capacity to look at it or see it. We were all, I'm just going to think positive and not face the fact that that there's child trafficking or real issues on the planet or, you know, Epstein, all this stuff, yeah. all the, you know, dark stuff in the totally. world. I just am going to be blind. I'm going to think positive. I'm going to only see the positive in my media. I'm going to only see the positive in the government. I'm going to see the positive stuff in me and not even look at where there's shame or guilt or anything else. And so that was us like water skiing on top of the ocean of our soul. Mm. And then after that, like we in 2020 had to go into the ocean. Oh my God, there's treasure in here. There's also sharks and, and crazy stuff that you have to learn to deal with. Mm. And I feel like we're now in the process of starting to bring up the deepest rooted patterns of trauma that were not only in ourselves, but in our parents' childhood and their, our grandparents and this long line of trauma that like came down the line. We're the first group that's like, okay, I'm going to face all of it, transcend it and become God's kid versus these patterns of the, the line. And so we're now in a place where instead of thinking positive as a denial of what's in your body that you perceive as negative, it's it's moving into the now, which holds love for both the positive and the things as negative and alchemizes the negative things because nothing really is negative, but you not looking at it and shaming it into the wall makes it not be seen and keeps it as a dark thing. And if you see it and find love for it, you find love for the party that feels guilt or fear or anger or whatever else and allow it to be there, it gets alchemized and leaves. And, and like, we're literally like purifying things by seeing them. And what hurts in your body is what remains unseen. And often when we look at things at the level of the triggers, we don't we don't go to the depths of what's there. You might think you're triggered by an ex saying something, but you're actually associating your ex as your mother from your childhood. And so you're not getting to the realm of the truth with the first level of healing, which is just talk therapy to just talk out that thing because the real root of why that issue is here it, and I almost believe that's intentional. I almost believe that some therapy was actually made to be like, don't get them to the root of this because if people got to the root of their problems, we can't control them. Mm. So that, you know, there's a real agenda to keep us not knowing the true essence of what we are, because if we did, no one could control us and the world would shift within seconds. Right. So it's like, keep them at talk therapy, keep them at weaker levels so they don't have to get to the real root of what the pain is and just kind of get okay with the trigger. But the trigger is trying to show you a deeper thing that you now left because you're you're let at the level of the issue with the, the the current thing that was triggering it but not why the trigger was there and when you get to okay i'm going to go to the depths of actually what this person's bringing up i i use the x as an example because i have an x often that i sometimes feel trauma bonded to and stuck to mm. that i love very much but also feel trauma and believe it or not right before this call i had with you I cried out a ton of my mom and thought it was, you know, going to be about the ex, but it isn't. It's it's like my mom died six years ago and there was more missing her and more uh, 
stuck to her and more trauma bond to my mom, right? Like, like I want my mom to, to see me. And, you know, sometimes I put that on my ex and then felt unseen by her, but that wasn't the real source of the thing. It's like, go direct to mom. This is about childhood and you miss mom, not the ex, you know, I love the ex, but that the, the, I can't get over her shit is not related to her. It's related to mom. And, and so when we go, okay, it's, it's fine. Now I see she's not aligned for me. It's about that. It's like, no, we didn't get to the root of the thing. And I could easily just start a new relationship with someone with the same trauma pattern and go through this again. So that's why it's so big to go deeper than talk therapy, unless talk therapy is taking you to deeper. Right. And, and which typically it doesn't, I mean, typically, which typically it doesn't. not to, because the people, the, the way we're training therapists specifically in universities and this kind of thing is to stay at that cognitive level. Right. Is this, this false belief that you can fix anxiety, you can fix depression with a change in your thinking. And that's what I'm saying about the subcortical parts of your brain that actually hold these traumas that are, that are actually reflected in your body then when we deal with those specifically, and when you say, and I love that, you start opening the door to that rather than going, there's no way I'm going in that door. There's not a chance. But when you say, and I love that, it feels disingenuous initially. You know, uh, I had a tremendous amount of, you know, feeling like Kyle was going to judge me on this call. And and then it's like, and I love that. I love if Kyle judges me on this call. And then that opens up a whole new way that we can metabolize the trauma as opposed to just you know, seeing it behind the door or down in the down in the basement with the bodies of the rats. You know, like it's it's like, can we actually go in there? But we have to be supported in that. We can't just all of a sudden shove ourselves down into the basement where the where the uh, the dead body is. We right. have to sort of go step by step, which is what I believe. You know, somatic therapy, somatic experiencing, internal family systems. This kind of work can get us to a place where the cognitive stuff can actually have a place to root. And that's what I found with me was when when I started healing at a somatic level, that all the cognitive work that I've done for 30 years, oh, well, that's why I do that. And the, it reminded me also when you're talking of like, I always say to my, my clients, patients, whatever you want to call them, it's like, well, you know, you're mad at your spouse right now, but just like when, like when, when are we, re- what are we really dealing with? And it's like, well, my dad didn't hear me either. And my right. spouse, whenever my spouse doesn't hear me, it's the same thing. Well now, okay, well let's deal with that issue with your dad because that's the root of it. Your, your, your wife or your husband right. isn't the root. It's like, this is the root of it. So and, I guess well, we're, and, we're, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, for the audience that's watching this, that might not understand that. And I love that. That was a thing I started doing starting in like 2013, 2012 at my events. And what it was is, is that if you take a core feeling, you might notice unconsciously that you associate that feeling to death, right? Like that the, the pattern says, you know, if I fail when I was a child, that means I'm dad will abandon me or I'm not enough or whatever. So when people say I'm scared, I'm going to be confused or lost or fail or abandoned. They there's a given that that's not okay. So if I have them say, I'm scared, I'll be abandoned. I might be abandoned. And I love that. All of a sudden, you're moving from control to surrender that you're you're accepting what could be and it moves from that being death to that being birth and there's a birth when all of a sudden your deepest thing that was your deepest fear that's inside suddenly is allowed so like if you're like then if if this partner leaves me it's like dad walking out on me again i might take the client to a place of saying dad's allowed to leave 
Mm. And, and then they're, they're literally accepting what their childhood was versus arguing with it. It's a very different thing. And so if you're sitting there able to say, dad's allowed to leave in my body, mom's allowed to shame me. It doesn't mean now it means that you've been literally deciding that would be death. And there's a character in you that says, I will not let go of this. But the second you say, and I love that, that character lets go. Dad's allowed to go. I'm allowed to be abandoned. I'm allowed to feel unwanted. All of a sudden, so I mean, I have had that many times. I love, I, I love feeling unwanted. I love feeling mm. abandoned. I love feeling, and then it just, you watch as the pattern that wanted to control that suddenly dies because it's allowed. It's expansion, it's freedom. So for me, it's very exciting to say, and I love that to almost anything. Mm-hmm. That, and, and people mistake that as complacency or aiming for that problem. Right. Like if a, a, there's people that are trying to become rich out of a fear of being broke. Mm-hmm. My belief is if you could love being broke, you'll actually be richer. So I'll have people say, I could be homeless. And I love that. I, I could be, you know, have no idea what to do. And I love that. And then the one that had to know what to do or couldn't be broke dies. And it actually opens your capacity to receive the, the, the level of, it's like you're looking through this lens that's this big. But if you suddenly allow this trauma, I am allowed to be broke or I'm allowed to be unloved. The lens goes like this. And all of a sudden you can reach higher because your circle's bigger. Right. So your consciousness is about acceptance and about allowing and about loving what is. And, you know, Byron Katie's great at, helping people love what is. And, and so is Eckhart and Wayne and everything. And like, yeah, we're, you are an expansive being and, and we're here to open up our expansion by, and you can only do it through love and acceptance. So loving the biggest fear is the way to uh, alchemize it and get rid of it. And staying in resistance to that fear just locks you in it. You know, like you say in your book, you know, opportunity blocks fear and fear blocks opportunity. So it's one of those things where I think you have a chance to sort of understand, even if I allow this feeling, if I'm if if, if I'm resisting even going in, even dipping my toe in this, I'm never actually going to be able to metabolize it. I'm never actually going to like ice baths. You know, when you first start ice bath, it's like horrendously painful. Oh, my God, get me out of here. But when you realize, well, I'm actually putting myself in the ice bath. When we were a child, we were we experienced trauma and pain, but we we weren't we weren't in charge of it. But when you say I'm gonna put myself in the ice bath, yes. I think there is something that that goes in there where you kind of go, you know what? I'm kind of taking control of this. This is this is very painful, but I'm actually metabolizing it. And I think that's one of the reasons why ice baths really help. Now I know you only have a couple of minutes left, but but and, and this is probably a big question for that. But how do you how did you heal your anxiety, Kyle? Well, the first time I had anxiety, it was really by think but there was an aspect of changing the thinking, but also allowing. The the like the first thing was really allowing, allowing what's here, wanting it to be here. The more I was fine with it, or the more I loved it, the more it would go away. Mm-hmm. The more I was in resistance to it, the more it wouldn't. Um, also thinking to myself, the first thing was kind of the secret thinking and different things. And it, it did have an effect, 
where I would go into auditions and be worried that I would faint in the audition or on stage. And then I would go in and then I would cognitively start going, I'm going to override that thought and, and just continually think I have the best set of my life. I am the, I'm the best speaker. I'm the best, whatever. And then it would be like this loud voice that was habitually there. And this other thing that said, I'm going to change my thinking too. I have the number one comedy central special. And I started filling my mind with thinking better things. But that suddenly also created a, an expansion in consciousness that let go of the anxiety and more and more didn't want to control it. And then also associated that, that those, I've had some of the best sets when I changed my thinking to that, meaning like th there was a time where I had major anxiety that I would faint when I'm on stage. And mm -hmm. then I would literally picture that it's the greatest set in my life. And all of a sudden my sets were better than before I had the anxiety. So I started thinking to myself, wow, the anxiety is making me a better performer. And then I started wanting the anxiety, which made it disappear right away mm. because it was like needed because it's making me so good. It was, I actually associated so much benefits to the anxiety that I couldn't get it anymore because the, the core of what anxiety is, is that you're in resistance to it. Yeah. It's that you're in an argument with it. It's that you're and and so that, that brings up what you just said about the, the ice baths, which is like, yeah, there's times where you're literally signing up for pain, like going to the gym or doing jujitsu or going into an ice bath or whatever else. You're saying I'm going to aim for this. So the only difference between if someone threw you in an ice bath when you were a kid and you didn't know any better and you deciding to go into it is one is like, this is hell. I didn't sign up for this, but it's literally the same act. The other one is it's expansion and healing for me to do it. So the whole thing is what you believe it is on the other side, what your intention is. So, mm. you know, I've seen people say some people associate stress as terrible. So they try to avoid stress. Some people see it as expansive. So they aim for it and they like get healthier and healthier through their stress. So it's what your subconscious believes something means. I'm really lucky. My deepest unconscious 100% believes that every single thing is that's happening on this planet is for my growth. So mm. everything good or bad is perfect. And I want it because I want growth. And even if it's growth that I don't see, and it starts to be really deep, there's 1% of me that's grabbing onto something that says this is so good for me. And so everything always gets better. And that's a subconscious you can create for yourself and be like, everything happening is perfect. So whether you're homeless or going through a divorce or, or, you know, someone isn't talking to you, or you're really sick, you could go, this is for my growth. And you start to like associate it differently. And I mean, you take um, Victor Frankl's man's search for meaning, who created a different meaning out of the Holocaust, you start totally. to go, okay, you can do it with anything. So you could always start to say everything going on in the world, everything going on inside of you is only for your growth and your soul. And you keep that constant unconscious knowing that even though you might have to feel through and alchemize stuff and really suffer, sometimes you have another little part of you that goes, this is right though. Mm -hmm. And you will always be growing. And that, that deepest unconscious of what you believe something means is the best thing in the world. Yeah. Because, I mean, basically humans, humans don't do anything until the pain of, of not doing it becomes greater than the pain of doing right. it. You know? totally. So it is one of those things too. And if you look at the neurophysiology of victim mentality, when you go into victim, basically you secrete cortisol through your adrenal glands and you also 
cre create a lot of epinephrine, norepinephrine in your brain, which basically makes you focus on the negative, focus on the fear. From an evolutionary perspective, this makes sense because it was like, okay, I'm afraid what's in my environment that's going to hurt me or kill me. Now, when you go the opposite, when you lean into your fears and Mel Robbins and, you know, the five second rule and that kind of stuff, when you lean into your fear and you actually do it, the part of your, your brain that secretes, you know, endogenous morphine, your own brain's morphine fires up. So when you, when you go into your fear, when you access, when you consciously say, I'm going into my fear, your brain will support you. So your brain is going to support you either way. If you feel like you're a victim, your brain will secrete epinephrine and norepinephrine to keep you activated. But if you mm. say, hey, I'm going to lean into this, your brain will actually secrete morphine, your own endogenous morphine that says, hey, you know what? This hurts, but it's okay. This hurts, but it's okay. And I think that's when we lean into our fear, our brain will support us. It will support us. And we we don't believe it at first. You know, there's something you also said in there too that, that comes to mind, but I can't quite remember it. But it's about, it's about basically when you face your fears, when you go into your fears specifically, they start to evaporate. But if you run from them, they'll chase you like a lion. Completely. Completely. Everything you don't want to have happen. I believe in the world, everything you don't want to have happen, very often the universe goes, okay, if you're at a high enough consciousness, it goes, I'm going to make you experience what your deepest fear is. Mm -hmm. So you can see you're alive on the other side of it. So you can see that that wasn't the truth. So, so like if someone's biggest fear is going broke, that God's going to take it from make them broke because it goes, see how you're still here. See how that pattern now is gone, that that deepest fear. So I'll take that from you or I'll make the person leave you or cheat on you or whatever else, because you'll see that you're still alive without it. And so, yes, I, I very much believe that um, we are moving to a consciousness where it makes us face everything. Mm -hmm. and And it goes, you know, have the be with the truth and be with the passing of this experience because you'll see that you're still fine on the other side of it and then free of that fear yeah. and our fears are here to get us to alchemize them and so facing them you can face that deepest fear internally and heal it without having to go through it or life will go oh that's still there i'm going to take it from you now because your brain doesn't understand negatives you know simon sinek talks about this too it's like don't think of a pink elephant. You can't, right. you know, like it's just going to keep coming up and your subcortical, your feeling structures are going to keep bringing that up so that your mind makes sense of that by creating the same old thought over and over. And if you keep resisting that thought, that program never changes. Right. So, and I love that and creating a place of acceptance and even embracing the pain makes a huge difference in your neurochemistry and the, and the way that your body feels. And it allows you to actually make some change. And yes. I think that's, you know, and that's, I have to thank you, Kyle, for changing my life and, you know, just doing what you do. You know, is there anything specific coming up for you that um, you'd like to talk about or? The biggest thing, thank you for that. And I, it's so great working with you too, man. I, you're the real thing. So it's awesome to be in this with you. Um, <clears throat> the biggest thing that I, I'm doing, like we have two events coming up that are both sold out. There's, there is an, a membership site I have that I am so proud of. It's called the Absolutely Everything Pass. It has all of my courses I've ever done. It has, I do a live call every Sunday, a guided meditation, all these times, you know, and then a Wednesday night call, I do Q&A. 
on. <clears throat> I also do hot seats where I bring people on and shift them. And there's a thousand hours of backlog content. It's insane. And the biggest comment we get from people is how much more expensive it is to not have it because <laughs> the amount of habits they've changed and addictions they've let go of by being there um, stop them from spending so much money. So it pays for itself and, and brings so much back, but it also is creating a healthier life, a release of anxiety, all kinds of other things. So for the public, it's $7.99 for a year. 799 for a year or uh, 79 a month. But what we could do for yours is we could create a passcode that says Kennedy. Okay. Take your last name. And then if they type in Kennedy, it's 299 for a year. Wow. And I promise you it'll pay for itself in the first oh. week. You'll go, yeah. it's insane. Literally, there's two-day events on there and four-day events and stuff that used to be $1,000 each on the thing. And it's it's everything there. And and I'm doing live calls so they can work with me. And we, we do work together too. So it's awesome. And if people want it, they can go to absolutelyeverything.tv and we'll make a... Kennedy uh, sure. passcode that makes sure. it two ninety nine. That's awesome, and Kyle. You'll love it. Yeah, that's great, and and I I love it too. Like I love your content. One of the things about it is I get sucked into it though. Like I'll watch it for four or five hours at a time, and it's like I've got shit to do, man. I better get up because it's so good. Because you're you're working my. I love what you said earlier. It's like I come from a little more of a scientific uh, background. You know, I'm kind of a neuroscientific spiritualist. And then you come from this sort of holistic kind of just love place of just pure love. And it's just the combination of those two things is really, that's how we heal. Like we, yeah. we heal, it's the art and science of healing. Like the the art is kind of like, okay, the spiritual part of it, because we're mind, body and spirit. And I think what we do in the society is we lean on the mind so much, yes. that it really doesn't address the spirit part. And the spirit part is so important for our healing. Right. And I think that that's what we have to really lean in. And I think that's what you're just brilliant at is just making that spirit part accessible. So thanks I mean, so I'm much for chatting. Go, uh, go ahead. Well, I, I would say just in regards to that, I'm only talking from my experience, right? So it, it's all based on things that I lived and learned, right? I I did not really study it. and I, and I And it's awesome to have every approach on it. But it literally is like, oh my God, well, I, there's several times in my life, I almost killed myself and then changed my consciousness and got more magical. But the almost killing myself was the old me dying. Yeah. So the amount of times that I've died to myself is profound. And now it's just a part of my life to gently do it a little every day, <laughs> like, and allow that to happen. But like, yeah, it's, it comes from evidence from my life. So it's very easy to teach it because I, I you know if you, you skydive a lot you're gonna know how it works you know yeah no and that's amazing Kyle I really appreciate the chat hopefully we'll get a chance to do it again and of course uh, yeah it's just best of luck in the future and ab what's the website again absolutely everything absolutely everything.tv or kylecease.com and they'll Kyle see it on there com. and then we'll make a Kennedy code and it's $2.99 for a year I like so Kennedy code. we'd love to have good. them Thank you again, Kyle. Like, I, I hope we can do this again in the future. There's so many things I've written down that I wanted to say, but uh, I really appreciate the the time and 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 just the work that you do. Thanks so much. You too, brother. So good to see you. Thanks for having me. So that's it for today's episode. Thanks for listening. And if the Anxiety Rx podcast resonates with you, consider getting my book, also coincidentally called Anxiety Rx. 
or you can follow me on any of the social media platforms at The Anxiety MD or my website www.theanxietymd.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you the next time on the Anxiety RX podcast.